Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet, and they distributed to each as anyone had need. And Joseph, or Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? After it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. So great fear came upon all those who heard these things, and the young man arose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter answered her, "'Tell me whether you sold the land for so much?' Then Peter, she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon all the church and upon all who heard these things. Let's pray. O Lord God, we pray that we would learn from the figure of Barnabas and the figures of Ananias and Sapphira the truths true for every age until your return. May you impress these things upon our conscience and upon our heart. May we not just be hearers of your word, but doers in the name of Christ. Amen. You may be seated. That's quite the account that you've heard this morning. It is sobering, and it should let you know just by the actions taken by the Holy Spirit himself in the passage how seriously and with attention we should give this passage. Now, you'll notice that this passage is similar to what we've discussed earlier in the series of Acts. It is, again, a mark of the church, reiterated, unfolded in more deep and profound ways, perhaps. Now, last week, God brought before us and continues to bring before us marks of the church. Last week, we deepened our understanding of prayer. Throughout the weeks, we've seen that prayer is not just steadfast, but a plea before God in His court, a kind of appeal process where we go before Him 
to trump the decisions of earthly rulers who wage war against him. We plead with him to overturn the evil on earth as he has done in heaven, that he would execute the decrees of his will. Now we, when we pray these prayers we learned last week, expect to suffer boldly as God uses us in the execution of his will. And that is something that, as a red-blooded American, it can be difficult to imagine. I call upon God to execute his will, and then I expect to just see victory and our, our feet on the necks of our enemies, so to speak. But in this era, at least, that is not how he'll work. He'll work through our suffering and the carrying of our crosses. Well, this week, we move into another mark that you have seen before. We revisit fellowship, the deep fellowship that goes beyond the potluck. And we've spoken about this before under the term koinonia, the deep fellowship of the church, which we see summarized in Ephesians chapter 4 as a unity in faith, a unity in the same hope, and a unity in the same love. Fellowship, when we move beyond those abstractions, manifests itself in practical care for each other. There is a kind of practical and lived-bodied summary that we see within the passage of 32 through 35, where they have all things in common again, and there are no needs. It is the consummation of the kingdom for a moment to show us a figure, a kind of end moment that we might see the end of all our actions and all our efforts. But this morning, it goes deeper than just seeing faith, hope, and love, a manifestation of care for each other, and with each other for our community. This morning, Luke, Luke, by the Spirit, deepens our understanding of fellowship by giving us two figures, Barnabas the Levite in verses 36 through 37, and Ananias with his wife Sapphira in verses 5, 1 through 9. We're used to figures because we have heard a sermon on the lame man. And of course, the most famous lame man of all, Jacob. Well, this morning we see these figures and we learn from them on what it means to be called as a congregation. Really, my hope for you, and I believe the Spirit's hope more importantly, is that you would see the seriousness of the fellowship that God has given to us, that it would become primary in your life. And so let's begin understanding this fellowship through the Levite first. Luke draws attention to Barnabas, and whenever you see in the passages like this with Barnabas in verse 36, notice how it gives his name, and then it gives these clauses where it says that his name is Barnabas, there's a translation of his name. This is telling his story. I think Barnabas' name is given 23 times just in the book of Acts. He has quite the ministry throughout the Scriptures. And then it goes on, and it gives a further qualification that we might understand him. And these emphases are on purpose that we can understand the point the Spirit wants to make to all the church of all time, that he is a Levite of the country of Cyprus. And he had land, he sold it, and he brought the money, and he laid it at the apostles' feet. He emphasizes here, son of encouragement, because of Barnabas' upcoming ministry. This morning we focus on another emphasis, which is that he is a Levite. 
He emphasizes, the Spirit does, Levite or priest. You can think of the Levitical priesthood, for example. He emphasizes this to show how you should be interpreting Barnabas' actions and offering, the kind of category that these things should fall in, where your mind and your heart should go, to show that our fellowship and all of the deeds that make up our fellowship, like, in, like taking care of each other financially, making sure there are no needs in general, here by placing a priest in the center of the offering, giving to a fellowship of living, living stones, which Paul calls a temple, we are invited and I would say forced to say that Barnabas is giving an offering. He is giving a sacrifice. He is giving sacred alms and vows to God. In other words, what you see clearly here in this type is a priest giving an offering to God in the temple. The Holy Spirit shows through Barnabas the Levite, therefore, that our encouragement and our care of each other in church fellowship is not just a get-together. It is not like joining the Elks Lodge or the Moose Lodge or whatever other lodges are out there or being a part of a hunting camp or a book club. That the categories that are being used here are sacred categories. And to violate the category, therefore, means that you would be sacrilegious. That we, too, as a priesthood of believers in our fellowship and all that we do for each other for the sake of God... It is but a sacrifice and an offering, a sweet-smelling aroma to Yahweh. That's what's going on here. Not just a historical event that has nothing to do with today. It is a way for us to understand our deepest identity. And, by God's grace, we see an explicit statement of this same sort without figures In Hebrews chapter 13, verses 15 through 16, right after speaking about going outside of the gates to a temple that the rebellious Jews know nothing of, the author of Hebrews by the Spirit says this, Therefore by Him, Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, He places worship into the category of a sacrificial offering offered by priests and continues to do so with thanksgiving. And then he says this, but do not forget to do good and do not forget to share, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. It is another explicit example where fellowship, your fellowship with one another, your care for each other, in all of the ways that you could see that manifested, is categorized as a sacred priestly act and offering and sacrifice to God Himself. Now, as if that were not enough, <laughs> I think He just knows us all too well. Okay, great. Thanks for the paradigm shift. Uh, that's exciting. Next. Well, to show us the seriousness of this, we have next this contrast with the Levite in the figures of Ananias and Sapphira. 
If you were to just pay attention on your own time to the language used to describe Barnabas and then the language used to describe Ananias and Sapphira, it's as if they're the exact same account. They're both doing the same kind of things. They're supposed to be a kind of mirror image, but then we find a darkness creeping into the second one that we might be warned to pursue the first. Ananias and, his, and Sapphira, his wife, also give an offering. That's the way that this has been categorized. They too, as a kind of priesthood, go forward to the living temple. However, when they did, they did so with hypocrisy, and they did so under the guise of a lie. They did so with ulterior motives. And let me just explain this a little bit, because it's sometimes when we read this, I hear people think, well, here we go, this is just, you're supposed to give up everything for God and take a vow of poverty, and he's upset when you don't do so. Let's just clear that out because that's not what is going on here. You can see under the surface that they must have vowed some kind of property value to the church as an alm, an alms giving. Actually, the lame man, by the way, was begging for alms at the, at the beautiful gate, the gate before the temple. And something is done here, a collection for the poor that you'll see Paul take later in his ministry. Let's say, for example, that they sold some property that they had for $10,000. What they decided to do is to tell the apostles that the property was sold for $5,000, and then they gave the full five. So it was conceived in a lie. The problem then became that they lied to God in the vow and in the offering. And because this is sacred space in what the Holy Spirit Himself in the Acts of Pentecost has created, a sacred sphere, they have now desecrated the holy and made it profane. They took a consecrated and devoted thing and they desecrated it by lying about the property price. And I imagine that what is really really happening here is that Ananias and Sapphira and this is seen actually in many ancient commentaries where they pick this up, Ananias and Sapphira did not seek to encourage the fellowship of the church. They were not going to be sons and daughters of encouragement like Barnabas. They would not build up the church or edify the church, but rather they would seek to use the church for their own vain glory, their fame, and to feed their ego that they might have a prominent position within the community. You can see how realistic that would be as you review Jesus' teachings on how one should give alms and the spirit in which you should give. Now, since this hypocrisy was not just against a social club or a get-together, but against a sacred gathering in sacred space, in a holy of holies, if you will, since the hypocrisy took place in a kind of temple situation, Ananias and Sapphira are treated like priests who desecrate the temple. Now, here's the quiz, and we're close enough where I can see if you know the answer. Who are the most famous priests who have desecrated the temple before? Hey, come on, man. You're a seminarian. You can give other people a share. You got to share. <laughs> what he said. Very good. What he said. Yeah, very good. Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons. And we can read of this at a turning point within the book of Leviticus where it says, Then Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, they each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it, and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. 
So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them. And listen to this. And they died before them. And then Moses talks to Aaron about God's glory. And then he continues with the account, saying in detail, Then Moses called Mishael and Elzaphan, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Think of how similar this is to this Ananias and Sapphira. Come near, carry your brethren from before the sanctuary out of the camp. The removal of the dead bodies from sacred space, the removal of the death that was in them that was manifesting itself in lying and hypocritical practices. Though Barnabas the Levite, it is, it is through Barnabas the Levite that we deepen our sense of fellowship but it is through Ananias and Sapphira that we recognize the great seriousness when we take it this deeply. It is unique upon the face of the earth, the community and the fellowship of the saints. You are a part of something that only God can create and that only God maintains. It is His precious of precious. It is the jewel that is buried. It is nothing less than the bride of His Son, Jesus Christ. And He will not allow His bride to be soiled. Barnabas the Levite deepens our sense of fellowship by taking us into different categories. Our fellowship together and all the ways that fellowship manifests is shown as a sacred act equivalent to an offering and a sacrifice by a priest in the temple. And you can read 1 Peter to see the same language used for your acts. And through Ananias and Sapphira, we deepen the seriousness with which we take our fellowship together. God takes our sacred gathering seriously. And we must not profane the holy congregation. Now, I think that as this faith, by God's authority, is established for you from His Word, there is an obvious question. The obvious question is, do you take the fellowship of the saints as sacredly and seriously as God does? And the answer, of course, will be no. The answer is no, because here there is a kind of end times vision. In this moment of the church, we have a kind of eschatological reality. It is, for a moment, the fruition of what God intends for all of us. And so though we will progress towards this, we have not arrived. But God in His grace has given us direction as to what we are to be, that we might understand our churchly existence and our identity, and that we might speak about ourselves correctly as sacred, and the violation of ourselves as sacrilegious and to understand what is at stake in our relationships. There is much that could be against us. Many conflicts, many snakes in the garden, if you will, that could bring their bitter poison into our hearts to seek to separate the unity of the body that is meant to be in the bond of peace. But when you know that this is a sacred unity forged by God Himself, it's worth fighting for. Those are some of the benefits to start understanding the sacred nature of this or through understanding the sacred nature of who we are and to begin taking it seriously. 
Even if we are not going to perfect it until Christ's return, let us always be on the path to it as our eternal identity. You know, I was... um, I finally found a show on Netflix that was not uh, totally uh, profane. And it's called Meat Eater. Anybody watch this besides me? Uh, it's about hunting and fishing. Uh, it's really good. Hunting and fishing in all over the world, but especially in Alaska. I would really like to take a missions trip to Alaska and do some hunting and fishing there. It has a philosophical edge, so he speaks about why animals do what they do, and uh, the ethics of hunting and that kind of stuff. And in one of the latest episodes, they were raising the question about white-tailed deer. Just bear with me. I know none of you, some of you just don't care about this, but it's going somewhere. White-tailed deer, why do they travel the way that they do? Every hunter wants to know that. Why do they have these particular habits? How can I begin to anticipate them? And they had concluded... Uh, that white-tailed deer, their traveling habits, are determined primarily by pressure. And the mountains, just 50 miles south of Arizona, they are pressured and their traveling is dictated by coyote and mountain lion pressure. And around here and other places, their traveling is dictated by human pressure determines where they sleep, where they go, when they walk, how they walk, and how fidgety they are, how on edge they are. If you hunt, you know these things. You can see a change in the deer's attitude depending on pressure. Now, I want to ask the same question and take that as a key, as if we were all white-tailed deer. What do, why do humans do what they do? Why does the church take seriously or not seriously the sacred fellowship? And I think that in some sense, the answer is still pressure. The overwhelming pressure within our society is not for you to take church fellowship seriously or to think of it as sacred. I would say it's on a decline and that what churches have sought to do in some places for your attention, is to turn themselves into an amusement park. That, I think, probably comes from the impulse of seeing the degradation and the loss of value in the church that is no longer needed in society and trying to add some kind of value to it. But here, we are seeking to show the value and to recognize the value of the church by way of just hearing what God says about things. And he places it in the category of the sacred, and he says, I'm very serious about this. I'll show you an example. But there is nevertheless the overwhelming pressure that you would not consider it as such. The overwhelming pressure in our society, and I ask that you would pay attention to these words that I use, because they're on purpose. I believe that there is a pressure in our society actually for you to continue serving as a kind of priest and priestess, but that you will serve in a temple that is not God's, not the true God, you will serve as a priest and priestess in the temples of secular society. And I would say the most grandiose aspect or headquarters of the temple is Wall Street. Secular society serves the gods of money. They serve the gods of recreation. 
They serve the gods of sports. This is what takes the modern person's time. It is what takes their space. It is what takes their money. That is the pressure. And you, as Christians living within the world but not of it, receive the same pressures. And you can, if you are not thinking intentionally, find yourself like a white-tailed deer pushed over into a place that you do not belong, a place of the profane rather than in the sacred. You are encouraged, tell me it's not true, that you are encouraged to make sacrifices to the God of our society. Are you not asked to sacrifice your time? Are you not asked to sacrifice your space with everything from the Ikea catalog? Are you not asked to sacrifice the fellowship, therefore, that is sacred? That it ends up being an afterthought and on the back burner? That your involvement consists almost entirely of showing up for a work day? This pressure can even come from within the church. Children, I've noticed, and please pay attention to this, children, so that you can respectfully have a conversation with your parents, Children are encouraged to think that their lives are meaningful when they obtain a career in our secular society, as if they'd reached the consummation of all that they were raised for. And so they are so excited to find their children in Tokyo or in New York or in business centers in India with their, their, their sky-rise office with no connection to any local church or the return of no dividends to all that the local church put into them as they grew and grew and grew. It is as if we raise our children to give them to the world in this particular way because we have been pressured into thinking that that is a value structure that we should accept. Now, I'm not uh, saying that jobs aren't important. I'm not saying that careers aren't important. But I don't want us to forget what Jesus has said within especially our American context. You cannot serve God and mammon. And if God is saying, you must take my fellowship and my sacred community seriously, and yet you find that you continually have that sacred community on the back burner, the words have become true. You really can't serve both. Working and playing in our society, you must remember from the main frameworks that are given within our Scriptures, working and playing in our society is always working under the reign of one Pharaoh or another. Like the Pharaoh of Egypt, today's culture wants all of your time. It wants your space. It wants your attention. It promises many things to you. But what it does not give you is any room or energy to love the saints. It does not leave you with anything for the community of the sacred. And so it is not unusual to see Pharaoh continually saying, just when you thought you were gonna, you were gonna work towards this goal and you were gonna get this job raise and you were gonna, and you were going to have this pay raise, and you were going to be in this department, or you were going to do this differently, thinking that you would then be able to do the things you know that you are supposed to be doing with the fellowship of the saints, you'll find Pharaoh saying, I need more bricks, and I'm going to give you less mud and less straw. I need you for my secular empire. 
But we hear in today's sermon, and in every sermon really, and every, every week with the cycle of churchly existence, we hear God in the establishment of the Sabbath saying, I will set you free. And He speaks to the pharaohs of this world and He says, let My people go that they may serve Me and be neighborly to each other. But that is the pressure. And I'm sure that you could come up with some other ones. But I think that the number one cause that Christians don't take churchly fellowship seriously is that they are too busy taking their careers, recreation, and sports seriously. And may we embrace our realities instead as God sees them. May we understand what is truly valuable, what is truly sacred, what is truly worthy of our times. We can have careers, but we cannot do so idolatrously. It says this in Ephesians 4, Let him labor. Work with your hands. Do what is good. Why? For idolatrous purposes? No. That you may have something to give him who has need. It goes back to fellowship. May we enjoy recreation and sports? Yes. But, Hebrews 10.25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another and so much more as you see the day approaching. I really think that there's a lot more that could be said here. But I want to go to the table I want to go to the Lord's table and I want to see His commitment to the fellowship because that's what matters. He is our captain. We could say more. We could talk about how you're not to use us to establish your own ego. We could talk also about elders and deacons and how it is foremost your job to keep the sacred space pure. And hopefully we'll have time to talk about those at another time. But let me summarize from James 1.27 what God calls you to this morning. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this. Visit orphans and widows in their trouble and keep yourself unspotted from the world. Please pray with me.